I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on the Rikers Island Crisis. Rikers Island has never been a place anyone has ever wanted to go. The very name of the New York City jail is synonymous with violence, fear, and injustice. But now conditions are at a dangerous boiling point for inmates, staff, and correction officers. The question is why. That's what we're talking about right now with our panel. Joining me is Ainsley Johnson. She's a second year law student. She was formerly incarcerated at Rikers Island on a case that eventually was acquitted, but she went through some unbelievable experiences, which we're gonna hear about in just a few moments. Ainsley, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor and former NYPD lieutenant and law enforcement commentator on many networks. Dr. Darren, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is Teresa Reddish. She was a correction officer on Rikers Island for 21 years, going from the late 90s into the 2000s. Saw a lot of different changes as well. We're gonna find out what she has to say about everything. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Also with us is New York State Assemblyman Zoran Mamdani. He was on Rikers Island just very recently and also last spring saw firsthand some of the conditions that made us want to do this show and really talk about this in depth. Zoran, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's always a pleasure. We really appreciate it. Zoran, I want to talk with you about this because I saw you right after you came out of Rikers Island in this month of September, and you seemed deeply disturbed by what you saw. Could you tell us what you saw? Absolutely. You know, Lisa, it was a horrifying um, visit to the island. And, and I say that as somebody who visited in April and saw already how deep the crisis was at that time, but even compared to then, it was at a different level of devastation. I spoke to individuals who were incarcerated on Rikers who had not seen the outside, who had, who had not been out of their cells and outside in fresh air for over three months. I spoke to individuals who were incarcerated who were in the intake facility, a facility where you're supposed to be between 24 to 48 hours for seven days, and who had not had any access to a place to sleep beyond the floor or a place to go to the bathroom. People were defecating in the corner of the room. I spoke to individuals who told me that they were set to go to rehabilitation facilities and all that was stopping them from actually going to those facilities was making the video interview in time. And every time that they were set to go for the interview, they would arrive at best one hour after the interview and be told they had to wait another month. So for three months, this one man had been waiting for that interview. And there was a corrections officer who took pity on his case and gave him the number for the rehabilitation facility and said, call them. Maybe you can do the interview over audio. And he called and they said, I'm sorry, the process has to be done by video. And so they're stuck in this limbo through no fault of their own. And they may die there because of the conditions on the island. And we're going to talk about that. Darren, for years, we've talked about Rikers Island. Rikers Island has been you know, the subject of a lot of investigations, all sorts of different management changes, leadership changes, that type of thing. Why can't we get it right with this? Well, Rikers Island has been a very broken system for years on end. When you do a contrast and comparison between Rikers Island and the federal correctional facilities, you see a diametric difference. The way the facilities are run on Rikers Island is, I want to say, very archaic. There's no automation. 
a lot of how inmates are being counted or recorded is through a series of cards and not a computer system. The automation system has never gotten up. So as a result of that, I think that they've been very resistant to change within the Department of Corrections. And so as a result, things are going backwards as opposed to moving forwards. Um, Aisley, tell us about your, your experience. You were in there in a couple of years ago and in the women's, in the only, only facility there that's for women. Tell us about what you were going through. Yes, I was um, held in Rosenfinger um, Center from May 2018, um, I'm sorry, September 2018 to um, May 2016. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, let me backtrack. I was held at Rosenfinger Center from um, September 2018 to May 2019. I'm sorry. Um, during that time, um, you felt kind of the push of new corrections as it's termed, um, as well as the pull of old corrections as it is also termed. Um, where you do have a, a, an attitude and an environment where there is a huge resistance to change, and it's not just when it comes to the automation. Um, it's, it permeates its way through every part of the system. So even with the civilian review boards, um, I can tell you um, with certainty that the officers, blue shirts and white shirts, do the bare minimum um, that they can to check those boxes to pacify the civilians. And as an inmate, if you want some of the services that you are federally entitled to, such as fresh air at least one hour a day, your counsel visits, uh, being able to have- Making a phone call, being able to make a phone call. Being able to make a phone call, I can tell you from my own personal experience that the only thing that gets respect is disrespect. Um, and being a cordial, articulate, um, patient person, um, you will you will die there. You, if if you allow and and do not kind of um, if you're not the squeaky wheel, you will not get the oil. And it is the problematic inmates that have kind of internalized um, that reward system. And unfortunately, it's some of the most barbaric inmates that do get access to some of the services, and they won't be the ones that will benefit from them, right? Right, and work have the, basically work work in the system. Teresa, let me exactly. Tell, tell, Tell us what years you were active as a, correct, a correction officer on Rikers Island. I was active as a correction officer between December 1996 and December 2017. And what kind of changes did you see on the job while you were there, you know, witnessing all of these things that are going on, trying to keep everybody safe and keep yourself safe as well? Well, a lot of it had to do with management changing. Um, we had a lot of people there with not a whole lot of experience becoming supervisors and they didn't know how to um, work in an institution. So when you have somebody come on the job with two years and they don't know how to handle an institution with 20, 100 guys in a housing area and they get promoted and it changes the whole culture of the jail because they don't know. So you're, you, you were telling me when we spoke before the show that it was kind of like a conflict between people, people that were wearing the uniform and the badge had street smarts, they were from the community. They right. basically, basically underst understood the street culture, if you will, that so many of the exactly. people that were inside were a part of. And then the, the, the what, what we might call the, you know, the book smart people were the ones that were making these decisions that didn't necessarily exactly. make things run more smoothly. Is, is that what you were, is that correct what you were telling me? And that is correct. That is so correct because I came from, uh, a ghetto. I came from a bad neighborhood and I found that the officers that came from my hood did the job better than somebody that was college educated because they could be, the inmates could be intimidating to them. So when you tell an inmate not to do that, they won't do it. If you feel like you 
intimidate, they're going to intimidate you. You're going to be afraid to tell them what to do. Right. And to enforce the thing. All right. There's many other issues. Is this just a question of overcrowding and understaffing or are there civil rights and human rights violations going on here that we should be paying a lot more attention to? We'll find out what our guests have to say when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Don't go away. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Lloyd, the King of Hearts. And this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics and real people only on Hot 9-7. You dig? Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. We're talking about Rikers Island in crisis, the problems that the island is facing right now, that the correction system is facing. Is it simply a question of overcrowding and understaffing, or do the problems go much deeper? Let's find out what our panel has to say. Joining me is Ainsley Johnson. She is a second year law student. She also has a master's in economics. She was formerly incarcerated on Rikers Island. Ainsley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor and former NYPD lieutenant. Darren, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Also with us is Teresa Reddish. She's a former correction officer on Rikers Island. Teresa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And also with us is Zoran Mandani. He's a New York State Assemblyman. He has spent some time on Rikers Island recently and also months earlier to see the conditions for himself. Zoran, when I was listening to that press conference that you and some of your colleagues gave after you came out of Rikers Island, some of these things that you were describing sound like human rights violations and civil rights violations that if we had heard about them happening in another country, we would have been outraged. Inmates being being kept in shower stalls instead of in cells, no sanitary facilities, the female inmates being denied feminine hygiene products and things that things that we as women need, the, just um, lack of food, lack just the, this whole lack of being able to contact their lawyer because they were in this intake limbo where they weren't officially part of the system. How bad was it? It was horrible. It's It's a stain... It's a stain on our state, and it's frankly a stain on our country, what's going on at Rikers Island and what we've allowed to go on at Rikers Island for far too long. As you said when we opened our discussion, this is not new. The associations of Rikers with injustice is not something that was born out of the events of this month. This is something that is a long-standing association, and yet this year it's gone to a new level. Twelve people have lost their lives on Rikers this year. Twelve people. Two people since I was at Rikers just one and a half weeks ago. So whenever anyone tells you things are getting better and we've implemented a whole new host of protocol in this last week or two weeks, ask them why people continue to die on this island. You know, I've talked about some of the things I've seen there, but it is really shameful when we reckon with the reality of it. There was and there were 47 individuals I met who were getting rec time, recreation time that they're supposed to get an hour of every single day. This was their first time in weeks that they were getting recreation time. And one of them told me that 47 of them had to go on hunger strike, refusing breakfast, lunch, and dinner for four days, the entire unit for four days in order to get that recreation time. And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, and I don't even know if I got this time because of the hunger strike or because all you elected officials came today and they needed to move us out of our facility. Wow. And I just want to say something, which is that often when we talk about this, we talk about issues of management. We talk about issues of understaffing. I want to make sure that we also highlight the issue of incarceration. There are over 6,000 people on the island right now. 
the island used to have a low point of 3,800 people. And we're just pushing more and more people into this island. And that push is being done by judges and district attorneys across the five boroughs of New York City. The same people who go on tours of Rikers Island and tell you it's a crisis, they're the ones who are creating this crisis. Well, there was also a freeze on a lot of new inmates coming in because of the pandemic and the courts being closed. So there were cases weren't being processed. Darren, is this a question what we're seeing on Rikers Island and the problems we've seen in the past? You've spoken, you've been outspoken about how politics can adversely affect law enforcement and safety. Is that do you think that's what's happening here? I think that does play a role, but the internal mechanism to audit what's happening on Rikers Island, I think is at the apex of the problem. If you don't have an independent monitor that oversees the process, then what you have is an appetite for destruction. This has been happening for years on end. It's just unfortunate because these are human beings, but at the same token, we need to have a qualitative process to ensure that things run smooth. Um, I blame the government, I blame um, the elected officials, but I also blame the Department of Corrections. And it seems as if the two have come to, the head, come to a head with no solution and it just continues to go on. Teresa, in terms of the, the, in terms of the understaffing issue, because Zoran spoke about the, the deaths and, and our condolences to all of the family members oh. and the loved ones of those who passed away who are watching this right now and listening to us right now. I think that the um, the understaffing issue was described as during the pandemic, there were certain pe people, officers were asked to do double shifts, then they were asked to do triple shifts, which means you're working for 24 hours straight without any kind of a break. And that because other people, so many other people were calling out for extended periods of time and, and there just weren't enough officers to go around. What do you think about that? And that's the problem. It's an inhumane to have somebody do 24 hours in an institution where you, you're, you're responsible for 100 guys at one time. It, we never did 24-hour shifts. It's a shorter staff. I don't know if they hired any new officers. COVID, people got went out sick with COVID. People died from COVID. We had officers that died from COVID. Right. So when I was there 21 years, we never had 12 inmates die. I was there 21 years. Mimosa, I know of two inmates dying in 21 years. So I don't know what's going on with the health with the healthcare system. I don't know who's doing the healthcare on Rikers Island. It's a rising. It used to be on um, St. Barnabas. I don't know. We have sick call for these inmates five days a week. They're allowed to go to sick call. They allowed. They didn't have it on the weekends. If they can get an escort. Every they night. can go to sick call. Yeah, Ainsley, Ainsley, explain, Ainsley, Ainsley, explain the process for an inmate you, to try to get that that medical help or attention. Absolutely, there's medical staff on the island, in every facility, that is 100% true. As an inmate, you cannot leave your unit without an officer to escort you. The shortage of staff exacerbates that problem. And also when they have like the problematic inmates, they have enhanced um, security measures for those inmates. They may need two or three people to walk with them to go to sick call. So it's, it's not just a matter of, you know, you have access to a medical staff um, every day. It's, you know, these problems, um, in, in theory, you do, but in practice, because there aren't officers there to walk you down the hall, you can't actually see someone. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's she's right. If you don't have the staff, how are these inmates going to get to sick call? Like she said, some of the restraints enhanced. They have to be cuffed to get to the clinic. So right, if you don't, have some, the office, you know, it's just sad. It's very it's sad. 
Zoran, what do you think about what do you think about the understaffing? Because because you and some of the other other elected officials that went into witness, you saw people with open wounds that had been untreated, people that were were clearly in medical distress in that kind of intake, the quote unquote intake center were not they were in that those awful conditions. What about the understaffing? I think it's definitely an issue. And I think that, you know, I am very sympathetic to what Teresa is saying, which is that there is no person that should be asked to work for 24 hours. And there should be no shock when the performance of that work is not at the level it needs to be if you're working for 24 hours. But what I want to refocus on is oftentimes when we talk about that, the push then becomes, okay, we need to hire more corrections officers immediately, and that will solve the issue. What I am trying to convey to people when, when I speak about Rikers is what needs to happen immediately today is we need to let people off of this island so that we can immediately decarcerate the amount of people on there. And what I mean by that is you have somebody who is on parole. I, I had After I went to the island, I had a number of people's families reach out to me because they don't have any way of talking to their loved ones. Right. One woman reached out to me to say, my husband and I got married. He moved out of his home so that we could live together. And that violated his parole. And they put him in Rikers. And I haven't been able to reach out to him. And now I'm, I'm terrified of what's going to happen to him. Thank God that after we went to Rikers, five days later, the governor signed a bill into law called Less is More. Less is More is a piece of legislation that deals with the question of parole violations. Because of her signing that into law, 191 people were let off of Rikers who were there on the issue of parole violations. Not but there's on, on technical and, and just to be clear and make sure I make sure we all understand this. These were for technical parole, nonviolent, nonviolent technical parole yes. violations, not for something where they committed another crime. But Lisa, I do also want to talk about something because oftentimes when we talk about people who are incarcerated, we talk about violent and nonviolent. We create right. this binary. I want to underline that violence is a construction by the state. The state defines what is violent. And what I mean by that is I met a man on Rikers who committed a burglary. Nobody was present at the place where he burgled. But because there was a dwelling unit connected to that property, it's considered a violent crime, even though no one was present. Right. There was another man who was, ru who was running away from an undercover police officer and he had no idea that the man was an undercover police officer. He thought he was just an individual chasing him. The officer in his pursuit injured and fell. And so then he is charged with that. And that's considered a violent crime as well. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Don't go away. What up? This is Trey Songz and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back Another to this episode story. of Sweet Soldiers. We're talking about the Rikers Island crisis. Joining me for this conversation, Ainsley Johnson. She's a second year law student, has an MBA in economics, formerly incarcerated. Ainsley, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Also with us, Dr. Darren Portry. He's a criminal justice professor and former NYPD lieutenant. Darren, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Also with us is Teresa Reddish. She's a former correction officer on Rikers Island. Teresa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And also with us is uh, Zoran Mamdani. He's a New York State Assemblyman. He's been visiting Rikers Island and uh, fighting on behalf of the inmates there. Zoran, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. All right. Let me let me bring Darren in here as a, as a former police officer. 
Uh, Police Commissioner Shea has said that who's on Rikers, aside from the people that are there for technical technical parole or any parole violations, Police Commissioner Dermot Shea has said that the people who are on Rikers Island right now in late 2021, many of them are very violent criminals who have been arrested in these gang and gun raids and for other violent crimes. Darren, what do you say to that? That this is not the turnstile jumper who got on there or somebody who was drinking with an open container because they're not getting arrested for that anymore. What do you say to that? That's somewhat accurate. In the wake of bail reform, many people have been giving desk appearance tickets to return back to court on a later date. We have the more violent offenders that are being housed on Rikers Island, and that's an actual fact. So when you look at the quantitative statistics in connection with who's housed on Rikers Island, they are the more violent criminals. This is something violent very different than, uh, look, I'll give violent you a chance. I'll give you, I'll give you a chance to respond. This is something that's happened since the pandemic. Now, there's an evolution in, um, in corrections that's occurring right now in terms of how we're looking to um, incarcerate people. One of the things that we want to take note to is what happened with Khalid Browder years ago, where we had many people that were arrested for crimes and they were being detained longer than if they were actually a sentenced teenager, for that, that offense. was a horrible case. Right. Right. So I think that really put a spotlight on the Department of Corrections and how we incarcerate, how we incarcerate people as detainees. And I think that process is they're still trying to flesh it out. However, there's still a long way to go moving Ainsley, forward. Ainsley, but tell, tell us what it does to somebody who's inside, because there there you are. You have a college education, you have a master's degree, you were working in business in the music industry and other areas. And then you get mm-hmm. arrested on very serious charges, taken into Rikers mm-hmm. Island. Thank, you know, thank God that the, uh, you know, your attorney, Philip Hamilton, got the charges dismissed. You, you beat the case. But what was well, it? What it was, was it doing? We had to take it to trial. But I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, wow. OK, that was acquitted. And then but you were there for almost two years. What does that do to you to you psychologically? Um, You know, there, there's really the disconnect between what we think is happening on the street and what actually happens when you get there. Um, it, it, they're worlds apart. Um, I have been in intake and heard the number two and number three in the facility laughing to each other as, as they're discussing some of these reforms and saying, as long as there's remand, we will always have jobs. So, you know, there is definitely an attitude within corrections itself, um, you know, that this is, it's a, it's a career um, and it is a career that people have been in for generations. And there are some people that intend to keep it that way. So um, even though there is, you know, this progressive wave on the street, what is happening in those facilities, um, it, you are feeling, you know, ripples um, that have been absorbed four and five times before you're actually seeing any, anything precipitate on the island itself. What, what was the worst thing that happened to you when you were there, would you say? Um, well, there was um, technically a riot um, within my first two weeks. Um, when, it, when we talk about medical care, I had tended to at least five um, fellow detainees with chronic seizures. Um, because it takes medical staff so long to get to the unit. Um, you you name it. Um, I've seen assault on staff, I've, and that is what they term any um, physical interaction between an officer and an inmate. Um, and in every instance that I witnessed myself, it was not the inmate that aggravated that situation. Um, you know, it's I've watched all the documentaries, and I did that before I was actually placed in that situation. Um, and you know, we think that that the inmates didn't activate. What, what I don't understand that. 
And in the instances that I personally witnessed, the inmates were not the ones that were aggravating the situation. But they did were, you witness were, incidents where so otherwise you're saying staff aggravated the situation? In the in the instances that I personally witnessed, yes, that is what happened. But did well, you, you know, some... I'm not saying that that is what happens across the board. I, I, there's no way I can know that. All okay. I can say is that what I personally witnessed with my own two eyes, that is what that is what my truth is. Teresa, what about that? Because there have been a lot of correction officers that have been assaulted, too. Of course. And correction officers do that job. Our motto was when you go in, you want to come in the way you came. The way you went in, you want to come out the way you are. We have we're dealing with 100 inmates and a unit and only two officers that we have to attend to. Matter, They get three meals a day. We make sure they go to they have um, um, clean um, linen. They do linen exchange. They have commissary. They go to commissary. Um, once a week, they have visits. So all of that, we run it. We was running the jail. We ran the jail. But it sounds like a lot, a lot of that has changed. But we need it's to a lot. You're dealing with a lot of people. You're dealing with your, uh, your staff. You're dealing with supervisors. You're dealing with inmates. So we, we get it from all which way. It's a lot. You can it's always resign. You can always resign. The inmates have no choice. You can, but we always want to make a difference. That's what we are, correction officers. We want to make a difference. We're not there to bust ball. We're not there to be, beat up people. We, we're there to provide a service. We, what is I that believe point? that to be true. I've also heard, I know exactly what the, the, the tenure is because there are officers that talk about doing the time with us. Only and, and instead of freedom, just, they get just, lifetime medical and pension. Can we, can we all agree that there's inmates that assault officers and officers who have overstepped the line with inmates? Yes. And then let's move on because some of the the things that that have been happening are go beyond, I think, anything that was going on when you were there, Teresa, and it just, and also Ainsley, and they're they're just additions. Uh, Zoran, when Jumani Williams came out of there, came out of the Rikers jail after the, after the visit that you all had, he said that he felt that it was at a boiling point, that it was something, it was just, it was a matter of time before there was an Attica-style explosion. Is that just political rhetoric or is that reality? I think that's reality. And, you know, what speaks to that is when we came out of the jail, 10 people had died in the year. Today, during this interview, another two people have died since that time. If that doesn't spell out a crisis, I don't know what does. And I want to make something clear. We often talk about individual culpability. Did this person do that? Did that person do this? What's happening on Rikers is a systemic failure. There is no one person who either is incarcerated there or works there that we can pinpoint and say, oh, you get this person off, everything's going to be fine. This is a systemic failure. And what we need to do to resolve this is systemic solutions. And what that means is getting people off the island as quickly as possible. The mayor, in the height of the pandemic, utilized something called 6A, which was a provision that could release people off of Rikers Island on work release. The mayor did that, released over 300 people. And at this point, the mayor is refusing to do that, saying that it's not a significant enough number that would be impacted at this time. And to that, I say that any one person we can get off the island and save is a person that is worth doing that for. And you know, earlier Dr. Porcher was talking about the statements by the police commissioner that these are largely violent criminals. I really want to respectfully push back on that. Well, the new, and, the new, he would, just to be clear, so everyone knows what we're talking about, Commissioner Shea said that the the new the detainees coming in 
um, since they started readmitting people during, you know, from the pandemic when the courts reopened at, in the summer of 2021, that that new influx was mostly violent criminals as opposed to people who had been in there before, many of whom were there on minor offenses that are now have been decriminalized. Anyway, Zoran, go ahead. So there, there's a couple of pieces of misinformation in there. One is we talk a lot about bail reform. Bail reform has been rolled back by New York State. That is something I firmly disagree with, but that is what happened. So now there are more charges that are eligible for bail. Right now, there is a 72-year-old man who is on Rikers Island for a nonviolent offense, but is eligible for bail because of the rollbacks. There are so many other instances where people who previously could not have bail set on them, it's now possible. And as we were talking about earlier, with these judges and prosecutors, wherever it's possible, they're asking for it. In the last month, over a thousand people have been sent to Rikers Island. So there's that one issue that bail reform, as it's talked about, doesn't actually exist. It's been rolled back. The other issue is when we talk about violent and who is a violent criminal, we have to remember that it's not you and me who define that violence. It's the state. Right. And a lot of times that violence is defined as crimes against property, not even against an individual. There is no fight. There's no altercation. It's somebody who robbed a house and nobody was even home. I'm not saying I am in favor of that kind of crime, but it's simply to state out. We no, because I think when you say, and, and, and it's good that we're defining these things too, because I think when you talk about violent crime, people think, okay, that's an assault, that's a fight, that's 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 where there's a there's a you know a human being who's a victim as well, and somebody affected by that. But Darren, Darren, what about what Zoran was saying about the uh, the people the people that are in there right now? Well, I think he has a right to his opinion. My opinion is basically we experienced a meteoric rise in crime over this last summer of 2021. And the citizenship of the eight and a half million people that reside in New York City wanted some answers. We felt that it was necessary to take people into custody that committed these violent acts in our city. The judges make the assessment as to who goes to Rikers Island and who doesn't. As I mentioned earlier, with bail reform, we see far less people that are making it to Rikers Island. It seems as if you have to go through a series of hurdles to actually get to Rikers Island. Yeah, but but going back to now more, Zoran says now more people are getting are are, are getting bail. Well, if that's his opinion, we'll leave that at that being that, his that, opinion. That, but that, sir, that. sir, I sir, I didn't interrupt you. So as I was saying, as we progress, I think we're getting away from the the focal point here in what's happening on Rikers Island and how can we make it better? And it starts with the political structure and the Department of Co Corrections working in unison for a strategy that can reduce the assaults, because this is not something that I'm hearing, but the inmate to inmate assault problem is a real issue on Rikers Island. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about Rikers Island. We'll be back right after this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson. And right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl, Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. We're talking about Rikers Island in crisis. The problems that the island is facing right now, that the correction system is facing, is it simply a question of overcrowding and understaffing, or do the problems go much deeper? Let's find out what our panel has to say. Joining me is Ainsley Johnson. She is a second year law student. She also has a master's in economics. She was formerly incarcerated on Rikers Island. Ainsley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. 
We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a criminal justice professor and former NYPD lieutenant. Darren, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Also with us is Teresa Reddish. She's a former correction officer on Rikers Island. Teresa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And also with us is Zoran Mamdani. He's a New York State Assemblyman. He has spent some time on Rikers Island recently and also months earlier to see the conditions for himself. Um, Teresa, speak to the speak to the danger. When, when you hear these stories and you hear about what's going on now, I'm sure you still hear from, from some of your, your former colleagues about what's happening there. What element, you know, from your, your point as your viewpoint as a former correction officer, the, the, the level of violence, how do you, how can officers control the violence inside? Well, when I was there, we controlled the violence pretty well because we had specialized units that came in and we did technical searches every day. Every day at jail, we would shut down the jail and we would do search, search for weapons, search for any kind of contraband. And we pr pretty much kept the jails pretty safe. Occasionally we have a fight or a riot, but for the most part, the jails were pretty safe back then because we had specialized units. We, we did searches, sometimes midnight searches. We'll do early morning searches and find contraband. And that eliminates a lot of the, um, you know, the assaults on staff and inmates, because we all want to be safe. No, de definitely. In, in terms of the, um, Ainsley, in terms of your experience there, did you, did, you feel, did you feel in fear for your life or your safety while you were there in the women's Oh, safety? absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's Rikers Island and it, it earned, has earned that name, I mean, earned its reputation. Um, when we talk about a, a search, let's talk about, you know, what a search is and what that does to an inmate. Uh, granted, it is necessary um, to keep the facility safe. On a daily basis, that is having your bed stripped, your belongings dumped out, your clothes rambled through, you stripping naked, you bending over, you squatting every day. Like, that is what we're saying is required for 6,000 people to be safe every day. That does not make sense. But right. we changed the way we search people. We respect people's property. We used to search people for just contraband. And we would ask them if they needed this or needed that when I was there. I can only speak for when I was there. And we respected that property because it's yours. So we well, and there, we there were also, to have it, but also during that. Let's let's be to, just to be fair too. There were also during that time there were some corrupt officers as well who were yeah. who were convicted and arrested arrested. Yes. And, for smuggling things like that, but let's get back to the to the bigger picture here. Zoran, we talk about is is Rikers Island kind of caught in a gridlock of this a la carte approach to criminal justice reform and decarceration, where one thing is done, then that doesn't work, so then something else is tried. Is that what you see happening here? I see what's happened here as New York City and New York State falling victim to a discourse that is peddled on fiction as opposed to fact. And, you know, Dr. Porcher was talking earlier about we can have our own opinions, but we're looking at a meteoric rise in crime. I want to make clear what I'm saying now is not my opinion. It's a restatement of fact. In 2019, the New York State Legislature passed bail reform. Right. In 2020, after a year of tabloid headlines talking about how criminals are out in the street and all mm -hmm. kind of fear peddling, there was then bail reform rollbacks where much of that progress of 2019 was eliminated and much of the things where bail was not allowed for anymore was now once again allowed. Into the mayor's race of this of this year, we were told that NYC is facing a meteoric rise in crime, like Dr. Porcher just said. To be although, clear, although they say although they say now as of August, uh, for the month of August, year to date, 
August, uh, you know, the first eight months of 2021 compared to the first eight months of 2020, that the major index crimes are down, that murders are down, that shootings are down. And that's something that I want to get to, which is that as you're saying those stats from June 2020 to June 2021, shootings were down 20 percent, murders were down 23 percent. These are facts. I'm not just coming up with this to bolster an argument. No, the NYPD facts, right. Exactly. And I think it's very important to go back to these things, because oftentimes when we talk about crime, when we talk about safety, we go back to feelings, feelings of fear, feelings of an uptick, feelings of being unsafe. But we need to talk about the facts here, which is that 12 people have died. More people are being sent to the island. And many of those who have died are there on bail charges. And again, what that comes down to is judges and prosecutors who are setting the bail, colleagues of mine who allowed that bail to be set in the first place, and executives like the mayor and the governor not doing everything in their power to get people off the island. All right. Well, the, um, they're trying to move, you know, trying to move 1,500 inmates who were who were basically stuck on Rikers Island, but um, who were supposed to were supposed to have been transferred to state prisons who had already had their cases resolved and uh, were found guilty, were to be sent to, to state prisons. That's one way to relieve it. There's a federal monitor who is overlooking the uh, what is going on on Rikers Island, who has filed papers with the federal judge about the conditions there that, that we've been talking about as well. And then there's also a question now of, does there need to be a complete overhaul of the system? Ainsley, what do you think about that? Does there need to be a complete overhaul? Um, it, there does. Um... And I say this because when we talk about bail, um, specifically, I can speak to in the Bronx system. Um, I had a bail that was set; it was uh, exceptionally high. Um, well, I had a family, and you were you were arrested on an attempted murder charge. That was my top charge. Yes, top um, charge. there were nine felonies in total. Um, so my because I um, technically have an out of state background, um, they saw it fit to set my bail at um, it was two hundred thousand dollars. Um, and the, in the Bronx County, though, there was an issue because, you know, my, my family owns property. Um, we were prepared to put, you know, deeds for um, fully paid off, you know, properties up. And the Bronx, because they're so used to dealing with people that are not property owners, there was no, there's no systematic way right. um, to put your property up for your bail. And right. so they came up with some formula that said that, well, the property, because it's out of state, has to be valued at like four times your bail, whatever, whatever. And outside of New York's um, real estate uh, valuations, that's an exorbitant piece of property, um, which is why I ended up sitting for as long as I did. So like what was the dollar, like what was it, what was the dollar value amount, the cash amount you would have had to come up with to get off, to get bail? Um, cash, it would have been $100,000. Um, the... Bond was $200,000. And if we were to put up property, it would have to be a pro- one piece of property by itself had to be worth at least $800,000. All right. In terms of the, in terms of this federal oversight, because we're also seeing Congressman Richie Torres, other members of Congress calling for the Justice Department to now get involved with what is happening on Rikers Island and in the New York City correction system. Darren, we saw this happen after the Eric Garner tragedy in 2014 in New York City where the federal government came in and said, listen, you guys, every officer needs to be retrained. There needs to be de-escalation techniques. There needs to be certain specific measures that had to happen as they reorganized the NYPD, more community involvement, a whole long list of things that many of which were actually implemented from, from what we were able to see. 
do you think that's the type of approach like from top to bottom, inside out that needs to happen here with corrections? I think that the oversight is necessary, but unfortunately, oversight comes and goes. You have one component that will come in via the federal government. They do an assessment of, let's say, maybe six months to a year, and then they leave. There is no practice to ensure that there's a sustainability. And if that sustainability is not in play, what you do is you revert back to what you were doing in the past. So the oversight needs to be something that's consistent, not just for a short period of time. They have an inspector general's office that intermittently monitors what happens within the Department of Correction. However, I don't feel that that inspector general's office has been effective. I think that you need an entity that's outside of government that can conduct, to conduct that, um, that assessment of the Department of Corrections, and it's not there. Teresa, what about some of the changes? Because the, the, you, we, we've talked about the lack, complete lack of technology of tracking inmates. When Zor, Zoran was in there, there were people that were not even, there, were, there was one of the legal aid attorneys from Harlem De, Defenders. She said that they, they don't even actually know who all is in there because they haven't been physically processed into the system yet. So they're there for days and in some cases weeks without being able to call family members, without being able to be in touch with their lawyer. Since they're not in the system, the lawyer can't go and speak with them and there's no, no tracking going on. What do you think about some of the systems that you think could be modernized? Um, we had a um, pretty good system where we didn't let inmates go past 24 hours. They was able to get a phone call. We processed them right away and they was housed within 24 hours. So something changed since I left. I don't know if it's understaffing. Maybe they do need to update their system. But we always had a track, a good tracking system where every inmate was either transferred out of state or in state. We always knew where they were. So I don't know what happened after I left. Just the, the overcrowding. Zoran, what about that? Because that, that's something that's terrifying for, for when somebody's inside, when your loved one is inside and you can't mm -hmm. reach them. That's that's a terrifying feeling. And it's got to be it a terrifying is. feeling for the for the person in detention as well. Absolutely. I mean, it, it speaks to the fact that there is no knowledge of what will happen next to them or to if they're outside to the people that they love on the inside. Right. I spoke to a man who attempted suicide on the same day that 24 year old Isaiah Johnson lost his life. And I asked him, why did you do this? And he said, my family cannot help me. The state has abandoned me. I have no access to the legal documents because the law library access has been suspended because of the pandemic. And so I cannot get in touch with my lawyer when I need to. I cannot fight my case on the timeline that the judges said I need to. So what is my choice? To live this life that's a lie or to make a decision where I can finally have some peace? That, and then he cool. showed me his arms. And it's, you know, there was, I helped to organize that, that visit on that Monday and we had a number of different elected officials. Two of them witnessed a man try to take his own life in front of them. While they were there. And I want to make it clear, while they were there, if you were experiencing the conditions that these individuals are experiencing, to take your own life may be considered the rational choice because of just how depraved everything is around you. And how and oftentimes It's so depressing. And oftentimes when we talk about issues like Rikers Island, it seems like, It'll always be a mess. It'll always be a problem. No, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it, it has to be a mess. I think there's, I mean, we're, you know, 2021 going into 2022. There, 
so many things have been improved. There's there, there's no reason that it it can't be it can't be made better, made made more humane, and and be done properly according to respecting everybody's rights, both the inmates as well as the officers and the staff that are trying to to support them. But Ainsley, just give us a, qu a quick idea of like what is it like when when you're behind those bars and it's like you don't you don't have anybody that you can just pick up a phone and call like if you're feeling down what does it do to your head um you have each other um you learn that's where um, seasonal depression is uh, is real especially on the island um and that is really where you find community um and then you know they pass out psych meds like tic tacs the number of people that are on zoloft and you know all of the the, the things that help you cope um, because the thoughts of suicide are so frequently that they refer to it as hanging it up. They're going to hang it up. You're going to hang it up. It's the casual way that you refer to hanging yourself. Um, and officers on their tool belts, they have a specific tool designed for a split cut down. Um, if you use your sheets, they have a tool that's specifically designed to cut it down quickly because, you know, thoughts of suicide and suicide attempts are pretty routine. Ainsley, I wanted, I wanted to ask you in terms of solutions, when you hear about the state of things right now, as, as somebody who was formerly incarcerated, what's the one thing that you think could be done to make things better? Release the detainees and allow them to fight their cases from the outside. All cases or just the certain cases? All cases. I mean, if we're worried about, you know, the most violent people reoffending, one, you may be surprised at how people see things differently after escaping a near death experience like Rikers Island. But also, you know, if they are going to reoffend, they will. Um, and they'll they'll reoffend and they will be rearrested and they will be held in a facility that is designed to house people. All right, Darren, in terms of what could be done, what would you recommend? The Department of Corrections in New York City is a closed rank society. You need to be willing to broaden your horizons and look at a system that's working somewhere in the United States and replicate that system here in New York. The New York City Department of Corrections has yet to do that. And I think that's the issue. You need an outside entity that you can view as a model that works and they're not doing it. All right. Thank you for being with us. Teresa, in, in terms of something that could be done from everything that you're learning about the current situation, what, what would you recommend based on your professional experience? Um, more oversight and more officers, more professional officers. That's basically it. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Zoran, in terms, in terms of what can be done now, what, can the state do something? Can you do something as a, as a member of, of local and state government? What can be done? There are three actors and institutions that can do things. There's the governor who has signed less is more, the, the legislation we were discussing around parole violations. That is still scheduled to take effect in March of next year. They can implement it immediately. That would release hundreds more people off of Rikers Island. There is the mayor who can use 6A, a power that he used in the height of the pandemic to release over 100 people from Rikers Island. He can do that today. And there are DAs and judges who can stop requesting cash bail for all range of offenses, thereby sending people to Rikers and thereby increasing the chances that they die on that island. All right. I want to thank all of you for being with us for this episode of Speed Soldiers. Ainsley Johnson, Dr. Jaron Porcher, Teresa Reddish, Zoran Lamdani. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Speed Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.